Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We are live right now and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Tuesday, the 13th of February. Coming up, the ANC is on the back foot as it has five days to provide cadre deployment information. South Africa considering more legal steps over claims that Israel is ignoring the ICJ genocide ruling. The city of Cape Town on its cash for power scheme. The mass recall of peanut butter in South Africa. Careful about that lunchtime sandwich and the dark side of online dating. In a move that's putting huge pressure on the ruling party, the Apex Court says it's not in the interests of justice to hear the ANC's appeal against an order that it should hand over the party's cadre deployment records for the period that President Ramaphosa chaired deployment committees. This means the ANC now has five working days to hand over the records to the Democratic Alliance's Leon Schreiber, who joins me on the program right now. And first up, remind us exactly what it is that you're seeking. So about three years ago, I submitted a request in terms of the Promotion of Access to Information Act, where I asked for copies of meeting minutes, email threads, CVs, WhatsApp conversations, and all other relevant documentation that would have served before the ANC's Cater Deployment Committee. The ANC refused to give us that information, so we approached the High Court in Johannesburg where we won the case. And then the ANC subsequently appealed to both the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Constitutional Court, where they have now finally also yesterday lost. And that effectively reinstates the order of the Joburg High Court that they must give us all this information within the next five working days. So the clock is ticking. Are you expecting compliance? Yes, I must say I've been very struck by how many people, both in the media and in the public, have suggested that the ANC will simply ignore a ruling from the highest court in the land. I think that's a comment on the state of the ANC, first of all. But secondly, that is something that would obviously trigger a very serious constitutional crisis because it would be the first time that the the apex court is, is basically ignored or undermined in this way. But the good thing is we do have the precedent from when Jacob Zuma did the same thing with uh, his refusal to appear at the State Capture Commission. He was held in contempt of court and he was actually sentenced to prison. So that is the precedent we will have to use in such a scenario But of course, we urge the ANC to uphold the rule of law and not trigger a crisis. Just give us the document. Have you heard from the ANC since the Apex Court ruling? Not a single word. We've only seen the the tweet that went out by the ANC spokesperson where she was saying that they are studying the judgment. But so far, we haven't heard anything from them. And obviously, as you say, the clock is now ticking. I think it's important to just emphasize, Jeremy, that What this case really turns on uh, is quite similar to the other court challenge that we also have, where we are asking the court to declare cadre deployment unconstitutional. And this issue is the fact that this is not just a committee of people in a private organization 
having private conversations amongst themselves. This is a committee in the ANC that influences the outcomes of public appointments. And the second, that a private body's actions influence on the public and on constitutional rights, the public then obtains the right to access that information. And that is why the court uh, ruled the way that it did. Assuming the documentation is forthcoming, what will you do with it? Well, obviously, that will depend to a large extent what we find inside. Obviously, we would study those documents very carefully, but we have a number of suspicions. The first thing is that we would find and be able to, to situate the current president of South Africa at the heart of the state capture project. We must keep in mind that the Zondo Commission already confirmed to us that cater deployment was laying the foundation for state capture because of the way it was able to subvert appointment processes. And we know the president was the chairman of the cater deployment committee during the height of state capture. So what this case would enable us is to be able to see the president's fingerprints on individual decisions and at the same time be able to pinpoint who those people were who were essentially selected by the ANC to capture the state. There are a number of actions that could flow from that, depending on the specific details, but we will have to study that in closer detail. And as I say, uh, we are awaiting judgment in our separate application mm -hmm. to have cater deployment declared unconstitutional. And what we find in these minutes may just confirm the urgency of that particular case as well. Are you convinced these minutes exist? Yes, I am, uh, for a number of reasons. The first one is that you may recall that when President Ramaphosa appeared before the Zondo Commission, he did hand over a limited set of minutes that covered a two-year period from 2021. But he said to Judge Zondo that there are no earlier minutes. They had lost the minutes from prior to that. However, if you look at those minutes that were submitted, the very first item of the very first meeting was adopting the minutes from the previous meeting. So clearly those documents do exist. But even more broadly, our application for information did not only focus on meeting minutes. We deliberately cast the net very wide because we know that there's likely catered deployment WhatsApp group. There are likely email exchanges where the deployment committee tells the minister that this is the person we have selected. There are likely also CVs that uh, the, the deployment committee would have considered or commented on. Those things do exist, and we expect the ANC to hand it over. Difficult, of course, or maybe it isn't, to prove catered deployment versus right skill for the job. Well, not if you have a, a proper process. And that's what this whole issue ultimately revolves around. We can talk about you know, individual examples of corrupt people or people who failed to live up to the job. But the real systemic problem with catered deployment is that it undermines a couple of key constitutional provisions when it comes to the civil service. So you need to have a fair process where all applicants are equally considered. You need to have merit-based appointments and you need that to be free from political interference. All of those clauses or provisions are actually violated by the deployment committee. And so when you do that, then you subvert the process and you make it essentially impossible for people to compete fairly and for you to have merit-based appointments. And so that is why we say it is systemic corruption. It is not the case of just one person stealing money. It is the systemic capturing of our public service institutions and repurposing them to serve the interests of ANC rather than of the public. You also asking South Africans who have been overlooked for a public sector job to use this court decision as a precedent. You're opening a floodgate there, aren't you? 
Well, the Zondo Commission made uh, the comment that CADA deployment does potentially open avenues for people who were unfairly overlooked to pursue labor court action. That was actually something that the Zondo Commission already mm. put on the table. And I think it is important that we use this precedent to end the culture that extends not only at national government level, but you know all the way down to who gets appointed in local municipalities. Uh, and where there is rampant nepotism and cater deployment. And, you know, there's the old saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think we are living that example now. And if we can get more South Africans to join us in this cause, people who have been disadvantaged, who applied for jobs at ESCOM or in government departments and who did not get the nod because there was interference, now have a new weapon that they can actually use to defend themselves. And that is something we will look mm. at going forward. Leon Schreiber, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The International Relations Department is warning that if Israel doesn't cease its ongoing offensive in Gaza, it's going to explore further legal action at the International Court of Justice. Durko's Director General Zain Dango is with me now. Zain, what specific actions or lack thereof are indicating non-compliance? So, if you, the provisional orders, um, good day, Jeremy, <laughs> it's in different Crete, um, the, the, the provisional orders given by the court on the 26th of January this year outlined six provisional orders. The first two are really important. The first one just compelled Israel to abide and respect Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. And foremost within that, there's got four sub-provisions within that article, is stop the killing. The second provision immediately following that is an instruction that the Israeli Defense Force seize any actions that would contravene Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, which essentially means stop the killing. So it, is, it was what is, was an order for them to, to stop the military action that was causing widespread destruction of people and infrastructure, and also for them to ensure that there is unhindered access to humanitarian um, services and, and on all of these, Israel has not complied. And these are binding orders. They're not. They're not advisory. It's, it it, it mm-hmm. emerges from an Article Nine action under the <clears throat> Genocide Convention, which means that the the provisions by and the orders for provisional measures are binding on Israel, but it's also binding on third states. Third the- party states are states um, including um, the U.S., the U.K., and others. So these have not been complied with. We've seen since the 26th of January increased action, increased destruction of property, schools, hospitals, and of course, um, you know, killing of civilians on, on, on a mass scale. And then the last sort of three days is the action in in the Rafa area, which is was supposed to be the safe zone, um, where they asked the Israeli government had asked um, people from Gaza to move from northern Gaza to that part of, of, of Gaza and with the undertaking that that would be a so-called safe zone. These assurances were given to the U.S., to the U.N. and others. And what you have is now about over 1.4 million, close to 1.5 million people packed into a space the size of Heathrow Airport. Um, and that is a lot of, it's a very densely populated um, by, by any measure. And any form of military action, whether it's through missiles or through a ground offensive, can only result in mass casualties. Right. Also, yeah, they're not they're not allowed to to 
to to to force people to flee into the Sinai Desert. That's also against international law and against the provisional orders. So these are essentially the the existing orders that are being ignored. So what further legal recourse or legal action then is uh, is being sought? What we've done yesterday, we've actually <clears throat> used the provision within the ICJ's own um, founding documents. Um, it's called Article 7.1, and this empowers the ICJ in in, in, in situations of extreme urgency um, affecting even one individual, but this is extreme urgency affecting 1.4 million people, um, and most of them, in fact, half of them being children. They are empowered to take actions without necessarily asking us to do oral arguments um, to order additional provisions arising from the fact that we've already had a case before them. So we've asked them to act under Article 75.1 so that they can use their own powers um, to proactively um, order new provisions given the severity and the gravity of the situation. In so, so what are those own powers and what specific actions or measures can be taken? So what they could do is ask for all military actions in Rafa to be stopped. They could also ask that under no circumstances can there be forced expulsion of Palestinians um, into <clears throat> into neighboring Egypt, into the Sinai Desert. Um, and they can also ask for the humanitarian services to, 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 to be opened unhindered and without any form of violence urgently. But there's still no guarantee that Israel will comply. That's the lacuna within international law at the moment, that the enforcement mechanisms when it comes to states is weak. With international criminal liability through the ICC, we know that the enforcement is imprisonment. You can be imprisoned in third-party states, so we have situations where people are imprisoned for individual criminal liability. When it comes to states, unfortunately, the lacuna is that the enforcement depends on other states to do so. So it depends on, for example, at the Security Council to ensure that all the states feel it necessary that these important binding on all of us are implemented and that they hold Israel accountable to this. And and this, unfortunately, is is the gap in international law when it comes to the responsibility of states. There is an international uh, agreement which is called the responsibility of states not to comply with international wrongful acts, and that could lead to issues such as arms embargoes, non-recognition, um, and we, we've invoked this in terms of the, the substantive arguments we've made, and we've seen other states doing the same now. We've seen, for example, the ILC being quoted by, by NGOs um, and others to hold other states accountable. But unfortunately, without the respect for international law um, and the compliance and obligations coming from especially the most powerful states, the impunity will continue. Zain Dango, thank you very much for joining me, the uh, Director General at the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Today, the National Consumer Commission is calling for urgent testing of peanut butter in the wake of a recall of certain brands due to possible health risks. Poppy Kweyama is Head of Education and Advocacy at the Commission and joins me now with an update. And very quickly, just remind me what the suspected problem was in the first place. The suspected 
problem is the chemical that we found in the peanut butters that we have recalled, aflatoxin levels are said to be higher than the regulated amount. Hence, we have recalled these peanut butters from the two stores in question currently. This came in pick and pay. How did you determine the need for urgent testing? It has been brought to our attention firstly by pick and pay, and then subsequently it was this came as well when they realized that they have bought from the same manufacturer, which is House of Natural Butters. So then they also came forward. Hence, now we had this recall. So the company is the House of Natural Butters. Are you receiving full cooperation from this organization? Yes, we are. So what specifically are you asking them to do? We are asking them to test the products from the ones that have been recalled and also to satisfy us that they have met all the requirements and regulations. So we have not received a full report yet. The matter is still under investigation. Who else investigates it apart from the Consumer Commission? The Health Department, the Agricultural Department as well. They will also be investigating. Are you able to elaborate for me on the scope of the peanut butter recall and how widespread it is? The pick and pay is all the pick and pays in the country. Eating all natural and discam lifestyles that will have been distributed nationally. While Wazugli's superfoods products were distributed mainly in the Western Cape. So we're talking how many bottles here? Thousands, tens of thousands? Do you have a handle on that? Not, I don't have a, quite a number, but I suppose it's quite a huge number, considering how many stores are in the country for these um, chain stores. Now, what instructions then would the commission be giving to consumers who've, uh, who've purchased the affected peanut butter brands? In other words, what, what do you need them to do? We need them to take back the peanut butter that they have bought from these two stores, regardless of the amount of the peanut butter. Even if there's only one spoon left in the peanut butter jar, the consumer is supposed to take it back and they will get a full refund for the peanut butter purchased. Is this being investigated legally to the best of your ability? Uh, have you, are you in, in engaging with that recourse in any way as far as the company is concerned? As far as I am aware, the matter is still under a preliminary investigation. Then after the report has been released, maybe that's when the next steps will follow. What about the factory that is making this peanut butter? Do you know whether they've stopped manufacture or have indicated that they are going to do so? They have indicated that they would investigate themselves just to comply. But in terms of stopping, I would not, I'm not sure. Surely the commission would be making that kind of call, given the health risks associated with aflatoxin. Yes. Hence the first step that we have taken of raising an alarm and awareness that these this products, they are found to have this level of aflatoxin and then the necessary steps will be taken thereafter. And to the best of your knowledge, do you know how many bottles of the affected peanut butter have been returned? Not yet. We haven't received that confirmation yet. Is this the first time that uh, the commission has investigated a peanut butter recall? To the best of my knowledge, I think yes. And what about other peanut butter manufacturers in this country? Have you also reached out to them? Are there tests being conducted for aflatoxin as well? We have also reached out to them to also just do that assessment. And then subject to what we will receive as the response, 
then the commission will make a decision or a determination on how to go forward in regard to this issue. So finally, what what would your best advice be to consumers to avoid buying all brands of peanut butter or specifically uh, the two that you've mentioned or just to be generally careful? What's the advice from the National Consumer Commission? The advice currently is just for, for consumers to be careful when they buy. But basically what you are say, specifically saying is that these two brands that have been found to have the problem, those are the ones that we are asking consumers to completely immediately stop consuming them. All right. Poppy Kwayama, thank you very much indeed from the National Consumer Commission. And during the course of that interview, we've just received a statement from the ShopRite group, which says it can confirm that the private label peanut butter sold in its supermarkets is safe to concern. The statement says, as a precaution, the aflatoxin levels in the group's peanut butters again tested last week. The quality and safety of our products, says the statement, are a top priority and undergo regular testing and quality checks. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Cape Tonians have until March the 8th to apply for the first round of the city's Cash for Power program. The initiative gives residents an opportunity to sell their excess rooftop solar power back to the municipality for cash. The mayor of the city, Jordan Hill-Lewis, is with us now. And firstly, how was the technical framework for this program developed in the first place? Okay, well, let's just cast our minds back a year when we opened this up for businesses. Uh, and the purpose of opening it up for businesses first was so that we could uh, test our systems and develop a reasonably simple administrative process and billing process and so on. Then it was always our intention to open it up to, to private homes, to, to residents as well. Uh, we also had this uh, not insignificant matter of having to get a exemption from the national treasury for following a a competitive procurement process because of course we are technically procuring power from each individual homeowner or business owner and by definition that can't be a competitive tender process Mm. we're buying it from one business so anyway we we got all of that in place and and did all of the the work in the background and ran the pilot with businesses Uh, There are now several hundred businesses operating on the system, and it's all going well. So we are now ready to launch for private homeowners. So are you then able to quantify the expected benefits of the program in terms of reducing or ending load shedding in Cape Town, given that you've effectively cast or are effectively casting the net wider? Well, the problem we have is that at the moment, most people are using all of the power that they generate to beat load shedding themselves privately in their business or in their home. So the amount of excess power that they have to sell us is actually very small. But we hope that now that we are removing all of these hurdles to investment, as more and more people make the solar investment, or even if they have an existing system, they decide to uh, upgrade it and enlarge it that uh, the quantum of power that is available to us grows. And the ideal scenario for us is that we can get a whole lot of that power uh, at midday when solar power is most prolifically available. And we can use it to pump water at our Steenbrus Hydro storage scheme and then use that water to generate power at peak times of the day. So that's kind of the technicalities Mm. of of how we intend to use this power. Because, of course, when it is sold to us, mainly at midday, the the usage on the grid is quite low. So you don't actually 
want to use it then you want to find a way to store it and we would use Steenbrus for that purpose. And what indication of uptake have you had so far? We've had lots of people signing up. I can't give you an exact number, but have no doubt that the several hundred businesses that we have signed up on the system will be multiplied many, many fold for private residences. And important to stress, this is only the first round. I know there's a lot of people still waiting for the cheaper meter, which we did commit to and which we will deliver on. We are very, very close to, you know, I don't don't want to jump the gun, but Probably in the next month or so, we will be able to deliver on our commitment of a much cheaper meter that will then, uh, again, encourage many more people to make their investment and and we'll run future rounds so that they can sign up. What, if any, interest are you getting from other cities in this country? Lots of interest from Joburg and and Etiquini, Durban. Some interest from some smaller towns in the Western Cape. But both Joburg and Durban have sent their teams here to to have a look at, at what we're doing. And so I expect them, well, they really should follow suit shortly. I, I, I don't know how long it will take them to get it all uh, in place. But that's n- no other big cities. Uh, and then I would say probably four or five smaller towns have come to see us. And the program's application process, you say, is very easy? Well, uh, let me not say very easy. I would say it's as easy. We have really tried. But part of the delay actually was I kept sending the team back and saying, no, I want it simpler. I want it simpler. Strip out you know, more paperwork. Make it as simple as possible. So I think we have got it down to a place where it is reasonably simple. If there is a way that we can make it even easier, uh, I'd love to know those ideas from, from the public. The only concern, the, the reason this can't just be a kind of simple click on a website or something, is because we are still in the procurement environment where we, when we're buying power. And so there's a whole lot of proof and evidence that we have to supply to the Auditor General and to the National Treasury. And so there does have to be a reasonable paper trail of exactly who we are doing business with as a city, even if it is just a private resident who's selling us less than one megawatt a year, probably. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. So, so it is, I would say, Jeremy, reasonably simple but not quite as easy as I would like it. Is there risk attached to this? Do you have to look out for honesty, one, and then two, I guess, um, business sustainability on the other hand? I think the second one is the bigger risk. Honesty is quite easy uh, to measure because obviously all of the, uh, the flow of electricity is metered. So that's one of the things we checked very carefully with the first phase of, of the business uh, signups. And we're pretty confident the metering system is, is working as it should and, and this is all accurate. The sustainability of our energy utility is a a real national concern because really, if we are honest with ourselves, the local government funding model in South Africa is very dependent on electricity. There's, There's no way to deny that for every single municipality in the country that is true. And so you have to wean yourself off that because it is not sustainable into the future. It is as more and more people go off grid or democratize power supply, that, that is going to affect the sustainability of your energy utilities and, in fact, your, your municipal governments. So our answer has been to say what you have to be able to do is you, you, can't, you, you, know, you can't stand on the shore and, and send back the tide. The tide is coming. You have to embrace it. You have to find a way to adapt your energy utility in that changing environment. And one of the ways you do that is by actually incentivizing people to sell you power because that power is still much more cost-effective than ESCOM. Remember, ESCOM is producing coal power at 
they sell it to us at peak hours at four and I think four and fifty-seven or something like that per kilowatt at peak hours, and that is extremely expensive. So the renewable power is a fraction of the cost, and that's how you can help fix the sums. Mayor Jordan Hill Lewis from Cape Town, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at midday. And finally, before you swipe right, uh, perhaps you should listen to this next interview. According to new global data, the number of online dating users in South Africa is something in the region of 6.7 million users by 2028. However, a warning has been sounded. There is a darker side to online dating. That warning from Mani van Skalkveik at the Southern African Fraud Prevention Service, who is with me now. A very warm welcome to you. Could you describe the most common tactics then used by scammers in this respect? Uh, yes. Good afternoon, Jeremy, and to the listeners. We we definitely there are two main tactics which we see, and the first one is the the perpetrator or the person who uh, is targeting victims would, uh, after a time period of making the the person feel comfortable, will come with a sad story. To say that um, you know that the, the children, his children, uh, usually it's a male, his children is uh, very ill, or there's some school issues, or there is some some drama created where mm. they need urgent money. So that is definitely a uh, a big red flag for anybody um, if you need to help. And I think what we realized. Uh, uh, about a, two weeks, three weeks ago, um, seeing the trend where there's not a drama, but the person sends a gift, um, usually from overseas, uh, the specific case, a handbag, said, we sent you a handbag and we slipped 20,000 uh, euros in it um, and expect that. And then the the customs would, uh, or the tax person will contact you and say, we've received this parcel you need to pay a customs duty on it of two or three thousand rand, or you need to pay for a courier to get this hand back to you. And those, so those kind of mm. trends we're seeing currently. Obviously, just exploitation of the lonely. So, are there measures that you would recommend for individuals who feel isolated but still want to explore online dating safely? Yes, um, I would suggest people visit. Uh, uh, securecitizen.ca.za uh, it's, a, it's a sister company of ours and there's a product called Verifyem um, which you can do an, a free online verification of the person uh, on the Department of Home Affairs to make sure that you are dating a real person with a real identity before you carry on. Sadly though there's always a reluctance among victims uh, of romantic scams, I guess you could call them, to report these incidents and to become engaged. Yes, it is. And, um, you know, people doubt their their judgment um, and they thought, how did I not pick it up? I lost all this money. Um, You know, but online dating is the new way of dating. So I don't think people should question that. That is the the, the way the world is turning. Um, But we need to get the crooks out of the system. Um, And I would uh, definitely suggest people... Go to uh, uh, Yima, it's another website, Y-I-M-A, it's a free product where we provide detail of scams, we provide uh, uh, you with uh, a reporting mechanism and and various other tools, free of charge tools uh, to consumers 
to manage scams. Mani van Skalkweg, thank you very much indeed from the Southern African Fraud Prevention Service. Just before I leave you, on our poll Monday, we spoke about stage six pain and anxiety. The question was, do you believe government has a handle on load shedding? Yes, no, or look at my new solar panels. Close on 90% of respondents uh, told us that government is navigating in the dark. Today's poll question, and based on an interview we had earlier about uh, the Apex Court's decision on cater deployment, uh, the question to you today, today is, will it stop? Is it a waste of time or the damage has already been done? If you'd like to participate, and I would urge you to do so, um, either go to MoneyWeb on Twitter, also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.